Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman, Oklahoma. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. Man, it's good to be back. Isn't this place just like your happy place? It feels so good. I'm so excited to be with you guys. Uh, if you guys are here for the first time, welcome. Uh, just so you know, we usually have a few more people, but I think people are still sleeping, recovering from spring break. So, glad you guys are here this morning though. You came on a great Sunday. At College Life, we always follow Jesus into his word and follow Jesus into community. That's why we have Bible teaching and that is why we have table discussion, okay? And why we have breakfast because you got to have that energy to have good conversation best conversations happen over food okay so I need some help though to get started can everyone get out their Bibles for me if you have it there you go or your cell phones whatever get your Bibles to hold it up in the air for me okay you see it okay now start flipping through it do you see each time you flip there's like a new book there's a new chapter, there's a new verse, right? The Bible, it's divided, right? There's, there's divisions in the Bible, there's organization. Uh, and this morning, what we're doing is we are going to see something really cool. We're going to be talking about a new story about redemptive history or a history that God redeems. And we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And we believe it has divisions and order and organization. But not only do we believe that the Bible is the word of God, but we believe that its story is unified, that there is unity to scripture. And that when you read scripture, that it is one whole picture of a trajectory of redemption. Okay. From beginning to end, there is a trajectory of redemption. Uh, redemption. And so I want you guys to consider this question with me. Okay. Just think about it. Have you ever wondered why it seems like God interacts with humans differently at different points in scripture? Say that again. Have you ever wondered why it seems like God interacts with humans differently at different points of scripture? If you're nodding your head, yes, or you feel like the answer is yes. It's because he does, okay? Although God is unchanging, and though his plan, uh, although God is unchanging, his plan for creation is unfolding, okay? Like chapters in a book, okay? It is unfolding progressively through history toward a complete redemption and renewal. See, the problem that many of us face is that when we read our Bible, we unknowingly have an interpretive lens or we're reading it through our biases or through our understanding of scripture as a whole or where we're at in the book. And the problem is we don't really know the full story of scripture. Okay. We can't, if someone were to ask us, what is the story of scripture from Genesis to revelation? We would be like, well, um, they created Adam and Eve, then they messed up. And then, uh, Joseph showed up. He had a really cool coat. And then David came along, you know, and we kind of have a trouble, have trouble kind of explaining the story uh, as a cohesive story, as one that makes sense to someone who may not be familiar with scripture. And so my goal today is to begin to see the story of scripture. 
Um, I think this series will be really helpful for you guys to understand that Scripture is a unified whole, that it is a picture of God's ultimate plan for redemption for this earth. And to see the story unfolding, to see how God interacts differently with humanity in different areas. And my, and my hope is that after this series, you would have a firm foundation, a firm understanding of what is taking place when you open your Bible. You'll know where you're at in the story. You won't say, okay, I have no idea what's going on, but you'll have a better picture of what's actually happening in Scripture. Because I think when you understand better what you're reading, you're better able to apply the truths of this book to your life, right? If you actually know what's going on, if you understand what it says, if you understand its place in history and in time and in space, then you can have a better understand, uh, understanding to actually apply faithfully the meaning and the truths of these books. And because God administers his plan differently in different areas, we have to understand the full story of Scripture properly to, fully underst- uh, to properly interpret it. And we're going to see this by looking at four ideas, okay? We're going to look at an overview of how Scripture is kind of divided and history is divided into seven ages, okay? And then we're going to look at the first three ages. That's our plan for today, okay? So we're going to have an overview to kind of build the foundation of what we're actually talking about, and then we're going to go over the first three ages. Sound like a plan? Okay. All right, so let's begin with an overview of the seven ages of Scripture. And the question that you guys are probably asking is, what is an age? And this is a simplified term, and it basically is just a period of time when God interacts differently with humanity, okay? So when talking about this idea, it's important to define what we're actually talking about, right? And I don't want to get too confusing, but the term that we're going to use in this series is age or era, okay? And essentially what we'll see is that in this story of Scripture that we're talking about, the story of creation is one that is progressively unfolding God's plan for redemption, okay? Progressively unfolding God's plan for redemption. So think of an age kind of like a grade, okay? So when I moved from fifth grade to sixth grade, there were a lot of changes, right? Different expectations and rules were in place, right? I no longer had this backpack with seven textbooks, but instead I had a locker. I had, instead of one teacher, I had six. And the expectations for turning in my assignments was a lot different. And the same is kind of similar in each age, each age, God relates to humanity differently. Just like how you have different rules and expectations in different grades, God interacts with people in different ways throughout history. Now, before we really get into it, I want to explain what redemptive history is not, okay? So whenever you're hearing this, I want you to know that this is not what I'm talking about, okay? So redemptive history is not saying that salvation has changed, okay? Even though we're saying God is relaying to humanity differently, we're not saying that the path to salvation is different. It has always been grace through faith in Christ alone, okay? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not saying that God's character changes, okay? Just because he's unfolding his plan progressively, that does not mean he himself has changed. And we're not pessimistic. We're not pessimistic about history. God's grace is being progressively revealed to humans and is being experienced in history. That's a good thing, experiencing God's grace, seeing it more clearly and fully. It's not individualistic, okay? So we're going to talk about, uh, through this, corporate 
entities such as the nation of Israel and the church, and even though we distinguish between the two, that they're two different entities, the, is the nation of Israel and the church, we are not saying that this is individualistic, okay? We're not denying the unity of the people of God, say by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but we are saying that when it's talking about Israel, it's talking about Israel. When it's talking about the church, it's talking about the church. And then lastly, this is not a changing plan, okay? This is not a changing plan. This has always been the plan, and this is how God is unfolding it through humanity. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians. We're going to turn to Genesis in a second, but Ephesians is going to be kind of the overview of what we're going to be talking about in this series. Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, and this is the Net Bible, NET. He says, He did this when He revealed to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure that He set forth in Christ toward the administration of the fullness of the times, to head up all things in Christ, the things in heaven and the things on earth. So in this chapter, Paul is talking about the mystery finally being revealed. With the first coming of Christ, what was veiled or what was hidden or what was a mystery is now unveiled. It's revealed. We understand it fully. And we see the fullness of God's plan finally in clear view. What Paul is saying is that everything will be put under submission to Christ. And that is the end that this plan is working towards. So when we're talking about this history, this is what we're, we're, we're looking toward, right? This is referring to what we call the future millennial reign of Christ, okay? We've heard of the first coming of Christ when he comes in humility. The second coming is when he's going to come in power and judge the earth, and he's going to rule over the earth, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And though Jesus Christ is sovereign and in control right now, what we're talking about is a fuller sense in which he will be mediating that kingdom. He will be the one through which God will will uh, talk what we're talking about is this future millennial reign of Christ okay and so the word administration if you want to look in your Bibles in verse 10 this uh, this Greek word is oikonomia and it literally translates to dispensation arrangement or administration and the main idea that when we hear this word what we're thinking about is the managing or administration of the affairs of a household okay managing the, or administering the affairs of a household. So as we get into it, there will be seven ages that we're going to be discussing through this series, okay? And we're going to be calling them ages. The first is the age of innocence. This takes place from creation to the fall. Then we have the age of conscience, which is the fall to the flood. After that, we have the age of government, the flood to the Tower of Babel. Then we have the age of promise, which is Abraham's call to Mount Sinai. Then we have the age of law, which is Mount Sinai to Jesus Christ, the first coming. Number six, we have the age of grace, which is our current era that we're in right now. And this is from Christ's first coming to his second coming. And then what we just talked about, the millennial kingdom. This is what things are pointing toward. Christ's second coming, and it will last for a thousand years. When you read your Bible... It is always in one of these seven eras. And there are hallmarks for how God relates to humanity in each of these eras. Okay, the way in which he relates to us. So let's get into it. The first age, which is the age of innocence. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, guess where we're going to go? Anybody? Genesis. Y'all are smart. I'm telling you. Genesis. That's where we're going to be. Okay, so we're actually going to begin in Genesis chapter 
one, oh my gosh, y'all are, y'all are good. Y'all are good, okay? So the Bible begins with the creation narrative, right? He is creator. In God's infinite wisdom, I don't know why, but he chose to create the earth. He chose to do that. He created the sun, the moon, the skies, the seas, the land, vegetation, animals. And what we see is that God is the creator of all things. But he also chose to create mankind in his image. In the creation of mankind, he chose to make them male, make them female, and giving them responsibility to fill the earth with his likeness, because we're made in the image of God. Fill the earth with his likeness. Uh, populate the earth, right? But he also entrusted mankind with caring for the earth and its animals, functioning kind of as the first governors, right? God is giving them this responsibility. Man at this time was innocent, right? Innocent, and they were without sin. There was no barrier between God and man. He could directly communicate with them. He could talk to them. He could tell them what he wanted. There was no barrier whatsoever, okay? So Genesis 1, 26 through 28 describes this account. It says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and sub subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what we call the creation mandate, or the charge to mankind, to fill the earth and subdue it, to take care of what God has created. So God not only created mankind, and it was very good, but he also gave them a purpose, right? He gave them a reason. He gave them a purpose. He didn't just create them for fun, but he created them with intention in mind. Since they could not care for all of God's creatures by themselves, they had to populate, right? They had to fill the earth with his likeness to care for the entire earth. And this is true. God's plan for his creation will be administered through mankind. God's plan for his creation will be administered through mankind. See, before the fall, we see that God's plan is good. He created things very good, and he had a beautiful purpose to his creation. He'd given commands to Adam and Eve not to control them, but so that they could experience his goodness and experience his purpose for their lives. And when I see these verses, you know what it shows me, friends? It shows me that God's plan is better than my plan. It shows me that obedience to his plan, even though it may feel, you know, not like what I want, it's better than what I want. God's plan is better than my plan. And it shows me that obedience to God isn't something that we should have to do begrudgingly. But we do it because we trust that God's plan is better, right? We trust that he loves us and he cares for us and he knows what's best for us. And I believe that as Moses wrote down this story to the nation of Israel, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And not only did he want to teach us that God was creator, but I think a lesson he wanted to teach Israel, which they never learned, is that, and which we've never learned, right, is that God's way is better than our way. See, sometimes obedience is hard, but choosing God's way, you'll never be disappointed. 
you'll never be disappointed when you obey God. And what we're going to see after discussion is what happens when we disobey God. All right, guys, we're going to get back to it. Hope you had some good conversation, and I hope you landed on the reality that God has not changed, nor has his plan changed, nor has his plan for salvation changed, but he is unfolding his plan throughout history, okay? So the next stage we're going to talk about is the age of conscience. In this next passage of scripture, we're going to see the transition actually take place and kind of where they're at and where they will go, where they are going to be in the age of conscience. So if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis 2. You should only have to flip one page. How about that? Easy to find. All right, Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. This is God's warning to Adam. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden for what purpose? To work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So what we see in this passage is a few things. We see that God gave Adam a specific command, and in this command, he warned him of the consequence of disobedience, which is what? Anyone see it? What will happen? He will die. He will not only die a physical death, but a spiritual death as well, okay? Uh, at this point in the narrative, there has been no evidence of death, and so this is the promise that Adam is, is given to show him what would happen when we disobey. Um, but what was the relationship? How did God communicate this to Adam? He told him, right? He verbally told Adam what to do, right? So there was this special relationship that we see. There was an intimacy between man and God in which there was a nearness, there was a closeness where they could verbally speak with God. But by disrupting this age by Adam's disobedience, man's relationship with God will change. What was once perfect harmony is what we call the disruption. And this, through Adam's sin, the way in which God would relate to humanity would forever change. Genesis 3, 6-9 describes this departure from innocence. So turn one more page, maybe. 6-9. So when, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Here we see... Even here, the intimacy between God and man. God would visit man, and he would speak to him in the garden. There was this sincere closeness, but we see the result of disobedience. Not only was this disobedience something that led to shame, but see, they knew they were aware of their sin, right? They, they knew that there were going to be consequences. They felt something. That's why they hid themselves. That's why they sewed themselves loincloths. We're going to talk about this more later in the series, but I don't want to miss this today. But reading this makes me so thankful that we are in the era that we're in right now. The feeling that we have when we sin is shame, yes, but the cool thing about 
a relationship with Jesus is he gives us freedom from our shame. If we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sin today, we don't have to sit in our shame or feel the weight of our shame, but we can have peace and freedom knowing that it was all paid on the cross and that through Christ, we can know God. Through Christ, we can have a personal relationship with God. But at this point, in this point in the scripture, mankind does not relate to God through Jesus Christ. But now, because of their sin, a new age begins. This is the age of conscience. Okay, so let's read a little bit about this. You might have seen their conscience at play a little bit in the previous passage, but you'll see it a little bit more here. Let's go to Genesis 3, 16 through 19. It says, to the woman, we call this the curse of sin. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, although the administration, I want to point this out, of how God relates to mankind has changed, God's plan has not come to an end. He has not destroyed humans. He has not created a new species to take care of the garden and take care of the earth. He still plans to use humans to accomplish his purposes. But because of their disobedience, because of their disobedience, how they relate to God has changed. They received a curse. This is how Glenn Crider describes the sage. If you want to look to the screen, he says, God now administers his plan differently than he had prior to the fall. He does not destroy these rebellious creatures. He does not replace them with another species of caretakers and he does not change their responsibility to fill the earth and care for it. Instead, it is the context of their task that changes. They will carry out their responsibility to care for the world marked by sin and all its effects. What he's saying is that the command to fill the earth, right, and care for it hasn't changed, but how that plan will work has, okay? Eve's punishment is that filling the earth is going to suck. If you've ever talked to any woman you know that childbirth ain't fun. It ain't easy, okay? And the, the sin, that, that the curse that man is going to face is that the work that they're going to do for the rest of their life is not going to be easy. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be difficult. Anytime they're trying to till the land, anytime they're trying to farm anything, they're going to have to deal with rocks. They're going to have to deal with thorns and thistles. And so work became difficult. So the two commands that God had commanded them to do, to fill the earth, Eve's responsibility, and care for the land, Adam's responsibility would now be difficult, okay? But the question is, how has God's relationship with man changed? We see how it's going to be more difficult because of their sin. Well, no longer does man relate to God through verbal messages, right? How could they know what God desired of them? Instead, it's through their moral conscience, okay? Since Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, how will they and their descendants know what to do? The best description of it is through their conscience. They relied on their conscience to guide their actions. Rather than receiving a direct revelation of God and what to do, they knew right from wrong based on the morality and the consciousness that God has given us. 
That's why we see, looking around us, we know what is right and wrong. We willingly choose to do the wrong thing, don't we? Not only is the Adam and Eve's, Eve's shame in the previous section an example of this conscience bearing out, um, but there's a case study of Cain that we can look at. He's the son of Adam and Eve, um, and it's going to help us see this, okay? So turn to Genesis 4, 6-7. through 7. It says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God is making an implication to Cain. What is that that he's making? He's saying that Cain, you know what is right. You know what is wrong, and you have the ability to choose to do the right thing. And here we see the first example of moral responsibility. Of moral responsibility. We all take responsibility, or we all have a responsibility for the actions that we make. Guys, listen up. We have a responsibility to the choices that we make. We are held accountable for the choices that we make. We each have a moral responsibility uh, today. We know what is right and wrong. We willingly choose what is wrong, and we choose to go the wrong way. And so today, what we can do is we make excuses for our sins, don't we? We look at our sin and we say, oh, it's not as bad as this person. We look at our sin and we say, oh, it's not as bad as it could have been. We look at our sin and it's, oh, it's not as bad as past generations. And our barometer for whether sin is good or bad is not God's righteousness or the, the standard that he's even set in our own mind, but it is the standard of others, right? We look at other sin and we say, that is the barometer for whether this is really bad or if it's justifiable. I was talking to Chris Abernathy yesterday, Sinead's husband, and he was telling a little story about how his mom would talk about this idea. You could do 99% of things wrong and 99% things right and 1% wrong and still be wrong. I'll do a little bit more appropriate example than hers, but uh, it's essentially when you make brownies, okay? If you know that 1% of that brownies is filled with poison, does it make it a good brownie? Would you offer a poison brownie to someone, even if it's got 1% poison? No, you wouldn't? See, I think that's a little bit of how we look when we violate our own conscience. That's what we do when we try to justify it. What we're basically saying is we would never try to convince someone to eat a poison brownie, but we always try to justify our sin. I mean, it's just a little sin. It's just a small sin. And just because something isn't explicitly stated as, don't do this, this is wrong. Let me give you, a, give you a, a, a bit of advice. If you ever start asking the question, is this a sin? It probably is. Whenever you get so close to the line of sin, what you're doing is you're violating your moral responsibility and your moral conscience. But we see it transition to a new age. God makes his will a little bit more clear. No longer is it just only on our minds and our moral conscience, but we have government. This takes place during the time of Noah in chapters 8 and 9. With the flood, we see a major change in how God relates to humanity. What happens when we only have our conscience? What happens between the flood and the fall? Does anybody know? Bad stuff. Straight up depravity. 
so much fallenness that God is like, this is so bad. This is so bad. I'm just going to flood the earth. We're going to start over with Noah because the sin is so depraved. They know what's right. They know what's wrong. And they are doing so many wrong things. We got to start over with Noah. And so what he does with Noah is he floods the earth and we basically say, okay, God is going to reveal a little bit more of his righteousness. And he does that through the through institutional government, okay? Instead of only revealing morality through conscience, God provides a way to protect image-bearing beings, okay? So let's turn to, uh, let's see, chapter 9, Genesis 9, verse 6. So this is what's cool. If you read uh, Genesis 9, verse 6, you see, verse 1, excuse me, you see that God reinstitutes the creation mandate, if you see that there. Um, But in verse 6, This is the institutional government foundation. And it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. An act of murder was now punishable by death at the hands of the collective community. Okay, this is the government. To raise the value of life among the community. By having such a harsh punishment by the community, what did it do? It curbed the evil. It protected the community. And so this government's purpose was to curb evil and protect the sacred nature of human life. Animals could be killed for food because they did not bear the image of God. That's why humans are special. They have God's image placed upon them. So how did God relate or mediate his kingdom to humanity? It transitioned from only moral responsibility, moral consciousness, to now a clear governmental mandate. And this is something, friends, that doesn't necessarily change, right? Obviously, God's law is higher than human law, but God has given us civil authorities even today that we obey. They put a curb on evil and chaos. And instead of everyone doing right in their own eyes, which we saw how that went, God has given us government as a gift. And Paul reiterates this in the book of Romans, chapter 13, 1 through 2. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except who? From God. And those that exist have been instituted by who? By God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities does what? Resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. God gave instituted government at the beginning in Genesis 9 to reveal more of his righteousness. He wanted it to be clear. There was no excuse. Well, well, it's not that bad to me. Oh, it's not that bad to me. No, God wanted to make it clear what his standard of righteousness was. And he will do this more and more throughout history in each era. Okay? But today we should still obey civil authorities as long as they are not in contrast to God's standards. The reason that we have that caveat, as long as it is not in contrast to God's standards, is because human government can still be fallen, right? It can provide order and justice, but it can also be susceptible since it is run by humans to corruption and abuse. Our ultimate authority is always not government, but God. What we see in redemptive history is this. It is this trajectory of clarity. A trajectory of clarity. In each age, God's righteousness, is it becoming cloudier or clearer? It's becoming clearer. What he had revealed in the minds of humans had now been made clearer in the establishment of a moral standard that if violated would now be punishment. God's righteousness became 
clearer. It's going to be more clear in the promise. It's going to be clear in the law. It's going to be clear in the revealed Christ. It's going to be clear when he is here ruling his kingdom. Do you see how we're moving to a clear and clear picture of God's righteousness? That's what's happening in the story of Scripture. We're going to see it more in the next few weeks. But my conclusion today is this. We have seen that although God's plan is unchanging, his plan for creation is unfolding. Unchanging, but unfolding progressively. We've seen this through the age of innocence, the age of conscience, and the age of government. So the age of innocence, they were innocent. They could relate to God directly. They knew exactly what they wanted from him. But they broke it with the disruption, right? And then it was the age of conscience. They related to God through their moral conscience. They related to God knowing what was right and wrong based on their mind. Lastly, the age of government. We knew God's standard with this law, right? If you kill someone, you can be punished by the community, okay? We have to protect human life, especially if the, if the command was to fill the earth and multiply. You can't kill the people that are going to fill the earth. So in these ages, what we've seen is this, guys. We've seen that God relates differently to humanity in different eras. But we also saw was a trajectory of redemption. God's righteousness is becoming clear. So after looking at these today, guys, this is what I hope. I hope that because God administers his plan differently in different eras, we are then able to better understand the story of Scripture. When we're able to see how he's relating to humanity. Whenever we're seeing what he's progressively revealing, we're going to have an interpretive lens to understand scripture in a really beautiful way. So I encourage you guys to come the next two weeks because this is just the start. So let's know God's word so that we can better love him, so that we can better follow him, and so that we can better know him.